Hey, it's Tom, and I've got Morgan Mosher with me today. Um, why don't you take a minute, introduce yourself however you want to be introduced. Sure. Um, Morgan Mosher. I am a senior principal now at T3 Advisors. Nice. I sort of, uh, yeah, big, big, big new title, exciting stuff. <laughs> um, I lead our workplace group um, at T3, which is pretty cool. A newer practice within within the group that I sort of um, started a few years ago, and, and now it's really kicking off. So excited to chat with you. Let's get into what that means, workplace group. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely evolved um, over the past past few years, and we've been figuring it out. But I think I think it's kind of finally settled into its own thing. Um, it's a it's a mix of we have traditional project managers, we have lab planners for our more like life science companies with people with real um, lab experience and, and way more smart than I am or ever will be. Uh, we have this sort of project management light, um, which is really just sort of helping our like early stage to growth stage companies just get their office up and running um, to light design help and really um, digging into culture as well as just function um, of the office. Um, and lately, I've been really focusing on a lot of interactive workshops with teams, which has been really fun, um, digging into more like innovation centers and what's next for the business and how the real estate decisions and setup of the office can impact that. Um, which has made my days very interesting and been really fun. Can we go there a little bit in a little more yeah. detail? Can you say more about some of the workshops that you're running? Yeah. So uh, quite a few of my companies um, have been sort of stalling in how to think about like the future of um, their offices. And they usually like the C-level has, has an idea of what they're trying to accomplish, um, but they don't know how to get there, um, nor do they know how to communicate it to like their boards or um, their employees and really how to like get that buy-in to sort of make that next step either with capital or to actually just execute on some of those big changes. Um, so I've been working on like these really deep high level um, innovation workshops to sort of like get them out of their heads a little bit about like the actual what and more of like why they're trying to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish um, and sort of break it down for them and then put it back together. So I kind of feel like a, a chef doing like a deconstructed s'more on a plate or something and sort of like, okay, I, I get that you want to serve a dessert, but let's, let's think about the ingredients. Let's, let's take it all apart and then put it back together so we can together come up with a better way to present it to the powers that be. Um, and then we can figure out the next steps to bring the right team together to actually execute and bring those things to fruition. So it's um, been pretty fun. Um, down from like change management workshops, which you'd think like every every project and initiative like has an element of change management, but the fact that people don't actually think, <laughs> think about those steps that are huge, big, impactful changes that really um, impact so many people um, down to just basic communication workshops of like, hey, now that our team is growing, I don't know how to deal with this personality type, or I don't know how to communicate with somebody with a stronger personality than I have and, and just really break it down to get like a team consensus on like how we choose as a team to communicate, how, how we sort of, now that we've had this agreement, we've gone through this workshop, we've all agreed that our meetings are going to be 30 minutes long, unless it's something different or something along those lines. So um, things that are related to workplace, but not so much like physical real real estate. So it's kind of how I'm spending most of my days. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have 
we're not talking about tables and chairs. We're talking about human stuff. Yeah. Which, um, go ahead. Sorry. No, it was just, I think that's like the future of workplace is the human stuff. Like real estate in general is changing and we've seen it evolve so much from like, you know, ping pong tables to coffee and to beer kegs to, to like everybody getting private office to working from home. Like all of these things have changed, but the one thing that's constant is like the actual people. And I think, uh, I think companies are finally catching on to the fact that like it's the people that matter and making them happy is more important than anything that you could do. And um, so focus on them first and the real estate stuff will sort of follow and, and you can make better decisions with your real estate because you can have really thoughtful work from home policies. You can have really thoughtful um, design that really impacts people that can ultimately impact your real estate needs and decisions that that ultimately is your your furniture and your tables and your chairs and how much square feet you need and and whatnot but it starts with really understanding the individual what sort of things um i read a lot of stuff that carry the words future of work and future of office um on the front lines like being hand-to-hand with people and shoulder to shoulder in the same rooms as these folks what's actually happening? Like what sorts of trends or shifts are you seeing where people are paying attention to the future of work? Or if you have a better set of phrases. Than I, I do. No, I mean, our industry loves buzzwords, so I won't take them away from anybody. <laughs> That's sort of like what, what people enjoy is sort of <laughs> saying, you know, talents of place and future of work and, and whatnot. Um, so we'll, we'll stick to it. But um, I, I mean, I'll, I guess I'll just rehash on the trends are more focused on the individual. And so you're seeing less one size fits all. Like I am going to, this is the workstation I'm getting for everybody. And I'm just going to squish in as many people as possible. And really like one of the first things I do is build personas for um, the different types of workers. And so basically you have like an average company maybe has four to six different types of workers um, and sort of build out that persona um, before even thinking about like what type of furniture and, and whatnot. Um, so you're like, okay, this persona needs uh, acoustic privacy, maybe a bit less visual privacy, or this one's really collaborative. So they can, they can work in this type of environment and really sort of breaking it down from that. Um, and then start building the design. So if I have 80% persona one, then that means that I need way more workstations of this style than this style, but really just um, making sure you have the ability to design for each of those personas. Um, and you're not going to get it guaranteed and right. You, and I'm not saying like, we have to make everybody happy. And like, if you cry about this, you get it. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. But just like, if as much as you can put people into buckets, put them into buckets. And so everybody has the ability to get something that they like. Can you say a little bit more about the process of coming up with a worker persona? I've never heard that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, so I actually started doing that internally here at T3 when I was starting to build um, our workplace practice. And they were like, hey, Morgan, can you com- come up with like job descriptions of like who you want to hire? And I was like, well, you know, in, in brand and in marketing, which is sort of more of my background before I started in real estate, you, you think about who's buying your product. So you build these like buyer personas. And I was like, well, ultimately, like who I want to hire is not going to be like, I need you to be able to do CAD and I need you to be able to do this. It's more about like your values and what you're motivated by and uh, your rough background. And so I started building 
internal workplace team persona. So now that I'm building out my team here at T3, there's actually five workplace personas that I wrote, all fake people with a fake photo. And like one of them likes matcha tea for the process. And I got really into it just to like really make these imaginary people, which ultimately informed really thoughtful and thorough job description. So now when I'm starting to build my team, I have this imaginary vision of the person in my life, in my head. And then I was able to take that and transfer it into job descriptions that make more sense rather than I just need you to do this X, Y, and Z, because I don't care about X, Y, and Z. Like I care about what you're motivated by, what are your brand values and, and like things more that you can't train, I guess. Um, and so persona, building a persona for the worker is very similar to that. So I just kind of have like a basic persona template and I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it's definitely something worth um, Googling. If not, and usually they're buyer personas and, you know, you assign an age, you assign a picture, you, you kind of break it down in a bunch of different categories. And as you start filling out these different sections, um, the person comes to life, um, which is really interesting and really excited. And you can kind of, you can put leadership style that they're what, what they interact with best, like acoustic preferences, um, and, and different things start pulling out as you build them. Um, and usually with the companies that I work with, I'm doing this with on-site observations or employee surveying. So I sort of, um, kind of work with the internal teams to get a good understanding of like how many of these I should be building. Cause they have a better idea than I do what they what type of workers they have at least on on paper they have an engineer they have a sales person they have you know gna or something so we um they start with that and then i just sort of build it out and then i show them kind of what we're working with and then give them an ultimate like if this person were to have a work style or a work preference they're going to spend 80 percent of their day at a workstation that would ideally look like this. And maybe it's a traditional docking station with two monitors and low light because they can't have glare on their computer screens um, to somebody who wants to work at a high top with just really convenience outlets so they can charge their laptop in between coffee meetings. Um, and, and that really helps inform the design process. Um, and it also gives you a little bit of something to measure success on because a lot of the stuff that we work on in workplace is like, they say the softer side of real estate. And there's not a real lot of like ways to really put an ROI or measure success on things. So the more like data you can put up front of and the reason why you're making decisions, because ultimately ff &E, like those furniture spends and the design spends, that's expensive stuff. And so if we're able to say, here's why I'm saying you should buy this or over this, and it's because... 92% of your workers re require this, um, it makes it a lot easier to digest such a big spend. Yeah. I'm blown away at the level of detail that you're going to, like when somebody shows up and says, you know, here's a CAD drawing or a rough floor plan of the space we're going to take. Where do you start? So I will say that I'm not doing this for my series A clients that need, um, you know, they don't know what their headcount is going to be in three months, let alone if, you know, they currently have three employees, so there's nobody to actually build a persona off of because yep. they're in the process of raising and, and hiring. Um, so for those guys, I really, I do like a higher level version of this um, and really try to understand who it is that they're hiring um, what and build a fake persona in my head, but I don't go through the whole process with with those guys. Um, so there's a little bit of like 
there's ranges of um, what level of work that this goes into. It's like the my enterprise level clients or my or my high growth that have the time and the um, budgets <laughs> to um, to actually put this into um, into work is when I get to get really down and dirty, which I love. But I also enjoy um, helping the the Series A's kind of figure it out. So. Um, so I guess it depends who the client is and what their ultimate goals are. You know, if they just need butts and seats in three months, it, it doesn't make sense to go through this process. And usually those series A's cl- clients, I like, I tell them to focus on and invest on flexibility. That's ultimately the only thing that we can guarantee for those clients is that it's going to change. <laughs> so invest in the ability to be flexible. And so whatever that means, so if that means you have to, um, spend a little bit more so your power system is more flexible or you're, you get casters so it's easy for you to move yourself or you're spending a little bit more so your lease is more flexible. Um, that is where I would recommend for those those smaller guys to really invest versus investing in this in this more thought leadership stuff. Who is um, who's typically in the room for the larger, client that really wants to dig in and is receptive to some of these ideas like from a title perspective i know you mentioned like c-level and folks trying to sell this to their boards but who else is in the room from the client yeah so a typical makeup is usually someone from hr so uh, like head of people uh or, or a more traditional hr title, but definitely that person exists. Um, there's usually someone from marketing, um, cause obviously the brand and the mission of like the space is very important and they're usually good at the internal communication piece. Um, cause that's, um, critical. Um, there's oftentimes a controller or a CFO, which those are always my favorite to sort of convert cause they think it's all kind of, um, fluffy and not too exciting. But then when they realize that if you take the investment to do it right in the beginning, you actually save money in the long run because you're not making huge changes or you're able to get less square footage or you help them, um, you know, with a remote work policy that ends up saving the money or something along those lines. So they end up liking me in the end. But in the in the beginning, they're very skeptical of like me asking them to describe what mood the office they want to convey using three images <laughs> or something. So they're usually a little... Um, standoffish in the beginning, but they, they tend to convert pretty quickly, which is fun. Um, and then there's oftentimes um, a founder or a CEO in the room, um, at least in the very beginning. Um, the founders I oftentimes have a very specific vision that doesn't necessarily translate to what's currently happening or what's going to be happening in the future. And so merging the, their masses to their vision of what they thought their company was going to be and what they thought their culture was going to be to what's actually happening and who you actually hired and who's at the table um, are oftentimes not the same thing. And so helping them still realize elements of their vision um, and breaking it down, again, keep breaking it down to the the why rather than the actual the actual thing so many get caught up of like oh i read a blog that we're supposed to we're supposed to do this and so i want to do this i want to implement whatever this blog that i just read that went viral on linkedin or whatever and um oftentimes you just have to say well that doesn't work for you and here's why and and you show them and um or maybe it will work 
(laughs) (laughs) How do you think that people today and like in the next five years, like some of the shifts in how people want to work, what do you see in there? Yeah. um, I see that really, I mean, people like collaborating, people like being next to each other but people also need to be able to just do their jobs. Um, and so I really see like that shift of, and we're, we're kind of already seeing it, but going back to a little bit more closed spaces um, and just like acoustical and visual privacy are critical, but people want the ability and freedom to, to move and change and shift based on whatever job activity that they're working on. Um, I really see robust and, thoughtful remote working policies, which I think will be amazing for both diversity in hiring, but also just like employee well-being and and productivity. Um, And like those being thoughtful and taken seriously and respected, I think will be a huge shift um, because until remote working policies are really respected and done well, um, they're kind of a joke. And um, people don't feel as valued and and whatnot. So I think that will be a tremendous shift, which will play a huge part in real estate decisions as well. Um, Both from design, designing for remote first versus, you know, everybody one-to-one workstations, like that will really impact square footage as well as um, furniture spend. Who is, or like some of the people that are being really thoughtful around remote like what is in those policies that makes you say thoughtful, intentional um, versus, you know, the flip side of it just being a joke of, Hey, work from home today. Um, yeah. I, stuff. Like what are you seeing? I actually haven't seen somebody do it well yet. Um, and okay. maybe it's cause I'm not really exposed to super established companies that have maybe have, really well working policies, but from the clients that I'm sort of interacting with on a regular basis, um, everybody's asking about it and wants to be doing it right. Um, but people haven't figured it out yet. Um, I think an office move or a transition is a great way to implement kind of change, any big change. Um, but oftentimes they implement like a remote policy at a, in a reactive way. They're like, oh crap, we're out of space. Like everybody is work from home. I don't know what to do. Just, just work from home. Um, rather than um, really thinking about why they're doing the remote working policy and what that, how that impacts and changes the design of their offices. And I think um, if you start thinking about remote first in your design, how your everything starts changing. The amount of conference rooms, the amounts of workstations, the types of spaces um, really, really start changing um, and celebrating remote workers when they are in the office and really um, thinking about having your office more as a home base rather than an office is really um, how I think it can start really changing the workplace and just really respecting those workers rather than thinking of them as like, you get a hoteling hot desk that's facing a wall next to the bathroom. Every time you see like Susie enter the bathroom and you're just like squished and, and awful. Um, we really need to celebrate our remote workers and, and making them feel part of the team and thinking about what perks you're offering in the office and how you can translate that to them at home. So if you're doing like cool free lunches on Friday, like how can you also give the, your remote workers that experience and really start thinking about how you can value 
those employees and just think about what that can do to your bottom line of like diversity and, and whatnot. You could be hiring um, more moms or like people from that are have a harder time commuting in and out of the city because um, that's crazy how much money people are spending on commuting and that really you could really impact a lot of those goals that big companies are making um, to change up their their workforce. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I think it's like, it's such a big deal. And it's hard to get right. I mean, I still have dopey friends that when they hear that I work mostly from home, say things like must be nice. It's like, (laughs) yeah, I get sometimes it is. And sometimes it's lonely. And, you know, there's really, there really is a lot of room to be intentional about it and to set it up the right way. So I'll come back and listen to this because I think celebrating people when they get into the office and making that a big deal and also figuring out how to translate some of the benefits that people get from coming into the office to, you know, them at home. Like that's such a big deal. Yeah. Like you have a gym at your office, give, give the people that work from home a $90 credit so they can go to the, you know, Equinox, pretending that Equinox is 90 bucks. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, But thinking of like thinking about it that way and, um, you're able to spend less on real estate because they're you're, they're not doing the square footage. That doesn't mean they shouldn't enjoy the perks of being an employee. You do like cupcakes once a month to celebrate birthdays, have Georgetown cupcakes, ship, just make them part of the team. Um, and, and really like, and I think as we start seeing more sensors in the office and more, more companies are using wayfinding and really cool technology, like the thought of being like, Hey, I'm working from home today, but I just checked my wayfinding software and like five of my best friends are in the office today. Like, cool. I'm going to go in and and sit next to John and, and catch up on this project that we haven't been able to check up on and really start utilizing that awesome technology that's out there for bigger and more thoughtful ways than just like utilization rates of, of workstations. You can really start using it to connect people. What are, so I, I hadn't heard of like wayfinding tools. I think I understand like sensors where people are trying to figure out like what parts of the office are being used the most and where are people spending all their time, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Can you say a little more about maybe even those two things in general and other tech that you're seeing in the office? Yeah, sure. Um I think this is like a space that's going to be changing. Um, it's evolving rapidly. My my colleague, Caroline Quick, actually just wrote a big blog post about sensors. Um, so go check that out. Shout out, yep. <laughs> shout out, plug. I'll share um, it out. But the sensors in the workplace, the furniture vendors are really the ones that are picking that up um, to help with utilization. Um, you know, it, They vary from cameras that blur out faces so you can act, get an actual like an actual count of how many people are in a conference room um, to sensors on chairs. So you can tell if it's being sat in. Um, they, they vary. Um, usually if they're tied to a lease administrative software, that's like a, that has like a floor plan built in, you can get, um, they have like, they even have sensors that have like little beacons, like a parking garage that says if like, this is red because somebody's in it versus green. And you can tie that to ID data. So you could really, um, though, like a office space is a software that a lot of our companies use that um, uploads uh, floor plans and has like facilities ticketing and IT ticketing. And so you can sort of have all of that in and you can be like, hey, where, 
where's Morgan sitting today? And it will like, my little beacon will sit up over here that Morgan's sitting at this workstation. It works really well in a, like hot desking or activity-based working way. So you can understand if you're on three floors, it's tough in a, in a flex working environment to know where you're sitting if you need to collaborate on something. Um, but the technology is out there and it's cool. Um, most people are using it for a utilization to sort of educate them on what they should be building in the future. So if they're like, hey, uh, our large conference rooms are at a 12% utilization rate, but our two-person conference rooms with Zoom are at 98% utilization. So we're going to build more of those in the future or how to what change can we implement immediately? Like putting in better technology to to mimic the the setup or whatever. Um, but I really like using it as a way to connect the offices and the people, especially the remote workers. Yeah, that's that's like the wild west right now for me. I need to do a little bit more learning there. But part of me is is like somewhat terrified that somebody knows where I am yeah. all day too. The big brother element of it is definitely um, being felt and thought. And so there, there's like a few different elements of that. There's ways, some are like, they'll do sensors just on a bank of stations and it's less about the individual user and more like this pack of six has three people in it and it doesn't know who you are. Um, or people go really deep into it. And I think it's more like, if you're a company that, you know, you have to log in with a VPN and you're security badging in anyway, and you're clocking in and out, like you've kind of already signed that line that you're secure, <laughs> that, that, you know, they're tracking what websites you're on. Don't think they're probably reading your email. Um, so like those companies, I think people know what they're signed up for. The ones that have a little bit more big ambiguity to it are the ones that are doing more of the blurred faces and doing the more utilization count. And in that case, if you're using it for more of a wayfinding, um, I would have your hot desking set up in neighborhoods just to make it easier to find. So rather than open, you can sit wherever. If I'm in finance, I'm sitting in the finance section. So it's at least easier for folks to come find me and collaborate with me. Got it. Um, just to try a little bit of a transition here, if sure. we go back to like the Series A people and, you know, the three month timeline and they need asses in seats. Um, how can they, I guess, first question would be like, what do they get wrong when they start to think about how to lay out the office? And then the second thing would be like, how could you, or how do you coach them to be prepared for like the next move or even to, you know, maybe they're not going to do a two month study with surveys and focus groups, but, how can they get some of that stuff in early so that it's not so shocking when they like go to do another move and it's not like we're going from 3000 to 6000 people that just means i can get double the amount of folks yeah um i think what i can do for them from the very beginning is start educating them on things and saying i think mostly with those companies sticker shock is the biggest thing and so even if i'm helping them buy an ikea setup for their very first office i try to educate them from the very beginning of like when like this is what we're spending today your next move this is probably what you're going to be spending and so that way they really understand what they're going into oftentimes 
another little issue that they get into is those babies, they, they take a sublease and like the furniture is there and it's amazing because it's, they got it for a dollar. It's part of their lease and uh, it's to stand, it's custom. It's, it's all of these amazing things that they got for a dollar and, or they're like working in their VC's office and it's like, beautiful knoll furniture or something and and then they're like great now we can have our own space I want this um and so sometimes I I worry that a lot of those series they start too nice because <laughs> like there's nowhere for them to yeah. go and then when they have to pick up the tab they're like oh no and the people that they're hiring were used to a level of finish they were used to a class a building they were used to this furniture and now that they are getting a direct lease they're going to class B or like C or anything along those lines, because that's what they can actually afford. So I think it's a mix of either starting too nice um, because it looks better on paper for a little bit, but if you start too nice, it's hard to take things away from people. So it's like, and even for yourself um, as a founder or something, you, you kind of like, wow, I made it. Look at this view, look at this awesome furniture. And then um, that only exists for 18 months because that was the deal term or something. And then they're like, crap, now, now where do we go? Um, so that's, that's usually a little bit of an expectation bummer. Um, down to, I think they always get uh, what they think that they can do versus really what they can do wrong. So they're like, oh, it doesn't cost that. I can buy carpet squares at Home Depot for a dollar. Um, I think that level, or I can just, oh, I'll just come in on the weekend and do the wiring myself or anything along those lines. So I think that that's really, <laughs> it's, so it's really just an education for the series A and, and sometimes it's closing my eyes and saying, okay, do whatever, do whatever you want, but I'm not going to be here when you do it. <laughs> um, but just trying to give them my, knowledge and sort of like you you can do whatever you want and prove me wrong please prove me wrong because if you prove me wrong on something then I I get to learn something and I, and hopefully I can share that knowledge with a, a client in the future but oftentimes um I've seen it and uh, I'll just wait for them to tell me I was right which is always fun <laughs> I love it yeah it's like if you can do that then you've got a new case study but uh, yeah it's probably not going to work yeah um Can we get back to, I feel like I didn't spend enough time where I wanted to on the um, like internal communications workshop. I sort of jumped over to the worker persona. Like I saw a new shiny object. So I wanted to spend some time there, but um, can we talk about like, I guess, how did you learn about that you knew or that you were going to be interested in helping people with internal communications and like, can you share some lessons with us? Sure. Um, I'm not good at keeping my hands still or like being good at one thing for a long time. So I'm always trying to, at least for my own personal self, like do the next thing or, or spend six months really digging into to something. Um, but the communication things really started with T3. Um, and that's often how most of the things that I bring externally happen. Um, lots of big changes were being implemented internally, um, new roles, new people, uh, time, different offices, different time zones, and just sort of this feeling of, um, a bunch of individuals when we used to be a team, um, and thinking about how do we just bring it down back down to, um, 
different types of personalities. Actually, I had a specific colleague and, um, Actually, I can I can share because we've talked about it publicly. But um, Amy Choi was hired from SVB, and her and I, in the very beginning, didn't get along very well. And um, and I never wanted to be that person. I love women supporting women. We work well together um, in the past before she joined T three. Um, but something about like our communication style didn't sync in the office. And finally, we had a heart to heart and. Um, it was actually at, we went to a leadership conference together. And during that conference, we kind of like figured out that she was like, I thought you didn't like this. or I, And I was like, well, I thought you were judging this. And we just sort of came to, we just like had that like moment. And then ever since then, we now work really well together. And we've been able to like, instead of working against each other, we've, we've worked well together on a lot of these internal uh, initiatives and, and programs that are getting established at, at T3. And then I figured, I was like, well, if you and I, who both ultimately want the same thing, um, had a hard time in the beginning, like who else is doing that? And who else just needs that moment of this is me. Hi, this is you. Where, where do you need to give? Where do I need to take? And how do we understand like our ultimate goals? Because oftentimes they're, they're aligning. And so if you realize you both want the same thing and how you're saying it is just different, um, oftentimes you can get there. Um, so I just started um, researching different ways of kind of bringing those, how to get that topic going um, in a safe, healthy environment. Um, and oftentimes uh, it starts with like, why am I talking? Um, I think us um, as like in our industry and we're surrounded by salespeople and people that love to hear their own voices, um, the pause of like, why am I talking? If you just stop and say that in a meeting, and if you can't answer that question, you probably shouldn't be talking. Um, that means somebody else probably has something more important to say or brings something, some real value to it. Um, and so that's been like the crux of the internal communication workshops is like figuring out the why am I talking and then how do I talk and like what, what do I need? So if you know, so we start with like a personality test and then we sort of assign four different things. Everybody fills the workshop out at the end and then we sort of share the results so people can say like, hey, if I'm going to call Tom and I have something negative to say, maybe I'm this is a phone call or an in-person thing versus an email. But if it's to Morgan, I need to be really direct and I need to be short and sweet and I don't she doesn't like fluff and wasting time. So she's just going to she's going to want a short and direct email. And so really figuring out that and coming to some sort of agreement um, down to like ideal meeting times and what type of meeting um, really understanding like, Hey, Morgan doesn't like um, scheduled long conference meetings. If I have something important to deal with Morgan, grab her for five minutes and just bang it out right then and there. Um, and so not saying that everybody's going to get what they want every time, um, but understanding where other people are coming from in those situations really helps um, any initiative. And then from there, you can do change management. From there, you can, um, you know, implement really cool projects or internal goals um, and really start building that out. What um, does that start with like a Myers-Briggs or like an Enneagram? Like what, what tools do you use to figure out what people need in the workplace? Yeah. So I did it with two different things. The computer program version, I used Crystal. I don't know if you've heard of it. Crystal knows. It's it's pretty cool. Um, it goes into like nine different types of things. And there's a paid version, which I don't have. But um, if I was a salesperson, I'd be using the paid version because uh, it even like does a quick assessment on LinkedIn. So if you're like trying to reach out to somebody, it will be like, hey, based on their profile, this person 
likes to get some personal anecdotes or it wow. will like it will like help you through that. Um, so I had everybody do the crystal version and it and it kind of helps you build like the ideal team and it will say like this will be the best this will be your leader this will be your supporter this will and it will sort of help you through that um but as well as sort of self-identified different things so uh the different i had like cards and you know thing and everybody reads something and whatnot and you sort of self-identify so there's the one that the computer program does and then there's the self-identifying because how you actually see yourself and um, is important as well. Like there's this, I'm sure there's the psyche part that matters, but also how you actually feel matters. So putting those two together, um, and then coming up with a sort of like internal communication agreement, I think is critical and really important to like respect each other's time on that. Uh, you, a few times now you've said change management. What is that? Uh, change management is something that everybody gets wrong. Um, everybody, including myself. Um, it's anytime there's any sort of process change or move or technologies. Um, it's how we as a team manage that change. Um, so my workshops through that really go through the like four stages of like what happens in a change, like those four stages. And then ideally in an ideal world, what you would do in each of these stages through these steps um, to, to make the best outcome. I mean, most change management initiatives fail because of change fatigue. Like people are just sick of change and they're like, it's nonstop. So if you put some thoughtful process in the beginning, um, rather than having 15 things change all at once, you have one big change management projects with 15 steps that feel a little bit more digestible. Um, and so if there's a thoughtful plan put in place that has, you know, stakeholders and like a change captain or team leader or something like that with key uh, landmarks and um, deliverables and meeting check-ins and stuff, then the change becomes less scary. And that's ultimately what people are scared of is is change is the unknown so whatever you can do to plan and figure it out in the beginning so there's less unknown people are way more receptive to it they just make they stop listening if you're like hey we're moving and you don't have any answers for them they stop listening because they're like well how is that going to impact me how is that going to am i going to still have a job does, does that mean my commute's going to suck does, like what are my lunch options going to be they're not listening if you're like well, you know, like it's it just becomes like the the Snoopy want 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 because they start worrying about that that unknown and that change um, because it's it, it, that's what we do we worry <laughs> and so if you can put a plan in place that's thoughtful and like it's real and it takes a little bit of time to pause and 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 put that into place but if you do it right then um, people will be excited about that change rather than worried about it which is cool yeah it sounds like. Um a lot of things that you've mentioned over the course of our chat is, I guess, tell me if, if this feels right, but it feels like slowing down, paying attention and being intentional, like before you set out to do something, whether it is an office redesign, a move or any other type of change, it feels like if you were to just sum it up in, a way of being that those things would help immensely. Yeah. I, I, that's almost like my mantra is just like, let's pause <laughs> because there's so much rush to sign the lease. There's so much rush to like, Oh, real estate feels like 
one of those things that you can accomplish when there's like a world of unknown. It's like, this is one of those things that I feel like I can do. This is like, I can get furniture picked out. I can find Elisa. I can find the perfect building or, and so people like to check things off a list and they're like, perfect. This is of, of the world of unknowns, my head count, my funding, you know, or even our product, our science, whatever it may be, like there's so many unknowns. And so the tangible thing of real estate feels like something really easy that we can check off a list and say, phew, well, we accomplished that. But oftentimes those decisions that are made so rushed um, need to be changed in a very short amount of time. Um, and they're expensive things. And so to take the time to do it right and build data, like the qualitative and quantitative data and like reasoning behind making those decisions and just pausing. And then you feel good about those decisions. Like my job ultimately is to make whatever decision maker look good because they made the right decision. Um, And so like if you're a head of facilities or head of real estate and I helped you realize whatever decision we made, you can feel good about and confident about that decision because you have data behind it that's also filled with the human side. So it's, it has how people are feeling. It has the survey results, but it also has like utilization data or whatever it may be. So you can actually have like a way to measure success. You can have a way to feel confident about that decision rather than I'm not sure if this was the right move for me. I just had, I had to do it because we were under a strict timeline, which of course there's always going to be things that you have to ramp up. But if, there's ever a time to slow down. I would say it's in the beginning of the process. So you can, you can feel good about anything you make moving forward. You can always speed up other things. You can always try to, you know, make, you know, GCs work on the weekends <laughs> or uh, find quick ship options for furniture or something along those lines. But in the beginning, like those decisions before they're made, I think that's the most important time to really pause and reflect and make sure you're doing the right thing. And even if the right thing is, we're going to rush because, you know, we're going to get new funding in 18 months. So this next move isn't the one that really matters for us. So we have, but taking the time to make sure that that decision even makes sense um, is important. Is there anything that you want to add about workplace strategy or anything we've covered before we transition to Camp Kita? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think doing research and everything is great. Um, but I just will always bring it back to what you need and what your employees need, not what everybody else is doing. Um, cause that doesn't matter. <laughs> like, uh, and I think that matters for both individuals. Like you should be yourself cause everybody else is already taken, but that's like the same thing for workplace and for, pe- for people. It doesn't matter what your, uh, what Google's doing or what Facebook did in their office. Like, what do you need and what do your people need and what are your KPIs to make the, the big right decisions? Cause ultimately that's what matters. Um, it's all the same. They're all, it's all a desk. It's all a chair. It's just all where you put it, who you're putting it there for. Yeah. I think that's a great way to sum it up. So tell us about Camp Kita. Sure. Um, Camp Kita is my passion project. Founded it seven years ago, which is crazy. So this is, we're coming up on our seventh season. Um, I founded it with my brother and sister. It's a um, therapeutic summer camp for kids who have lost a loved one to suicide. Um, We lost our dad when we were teenagers and uh, camping was one of my favorite things that we did with him. And also just sort of the isolating feeling of being the 
only kid that I knew of other than my brother and sister who had dealt with a suicide loss. Um, So when I first started it, I wrote like when I just got the idea, I wrote like a research paper on the summer camp experience and grief um, just to sort of see if there was any connections to that before actually figuring out how to do it. And there's so many elements of like the summer camp community that helps in a grief setting. And so I was just like, let's, let's try it. But it was very much like, I don't know if this will work or, or what it's going to do. Um, but now that we're coming on our seventh summer, which is crazy, um, it's free for kids to attend, which is also like really, um, important to us because we grew up really poor. So if a summer camp cost what summer camps cost, we wouldn't have been able to go. So I was like, well, all these, these kids have been through enough. And oftentimes with suicide, it impacts um, finances tremendously. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we would have been able to go and really enjoy it. Um, so we made that opportunity something um, for everybody. We get kids from all over the country, Utah, California, Florida, to come up to Maine, which is kind of where summer camp needs to happen. <laughs> I Amen to that. <laughs> so uh, I think that that's really important. Um, it's only a week long program, um, cause we all work full times and have families and whatnot. So, um, what are the future of Camp Kita looks like? We're not 100% sure. Um, we're trying to figure out like if we're going to get like a camp director or somebody who actually knows what they're doing to sort of help us grow so it can g- expand for more than a week so we can, um, impact more children. Um, but we're figuring that out as we go. Um, it's a really magical, special place. Actually, we just got uh, a camper his mom just sent us an essay that he wrote for for school um about his experience at camp and like every time I get things like that like that the campers don't know that they didn't write it for us and they didn't write it for us to see or anything like that it just uh, I just ball because I'm an emotional oh, wreck yeah. I'm an emotional wreck anyway but when I see things like that it just it blows my mind that like literally was on a couch when I got the idea and I was like, didn't know if it was going to work. And I was like, I don't know if other kids will get out what I want them to get out of it. And really just the fact that they do, and they're building those connections and our adult volunteers that come who are also suicide loss survivors get so much out of it. And they start taking ownership and pride and all the campers get ownership and pride and it's just become this thing. And I'm just like, I'm not worthy of this feeling that I get like watching these campers really grow and and blossom and then these adults who spend all year raising money for us because they spent a day at camp and and it impacted their life and they walk around wearing the t-shirts and and whatnot and I'm just like this is insane and it doesn't make sense and I've always like I just I at actual camp whenever we have like our checkouts with our volunteers I just like cry because our volunteers give so much of themselves and it just like blows my mind and it makes me so happy to like see something that started so small become a huge impact and part of other people's lives it makes me like I I, like I'm so humbled and like blown away that I I just really feel not worthy to like be part of it anymore because I'm just like I'm not qualified for this and literally it was just like an idea it's gotten so big and I just don't know how to like ever thank the people that are involved that actually are the smart people like the doctors and the clinicians and the people that actually volunteer and and give themselves to camp it's it blows my mind but it's it's awesome yeah that is that's amazing i want to um ask you about two different things one is the first year and then tell us what this year is looking like but i guess 
what would, do you remember what it felt like to to go through the steps to actually like go forward the first time like sign a an agreement to use somebody's campsite and <laughs> yeah. figure out how many kids are going to show up like what was the first year like yeah so i got the idea in like march february march and i like called my brother and sister actually i just called my sister i didn't involve my brother in the beginning because we never really talked about suicide loss which is so funny um now we talk about it nonstop, and we're like advocates but we had never talked about it we hadn't we had really hadn't begun our healing journey together um and I called my sister and I was like, I don't know what I, I want to do a camping thing. Like, I don't know if I want to like do a canoe trip or some, like, I don't know what it looks like, but I want to do this for suicide loss survivors. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a day or what, what it's going to be, but I want to do it. And it was March. And so Sydney and I, um, my sister did like an Indiegogo to sort of help us um, get our legal fees in order so we could apply for like the nonprofit status and, and sort of figure that out. And so we actually like in that Indiegogo campaign had photos of like our dad and our family and like Sydney and I, and we like cropped my brother out of the photo because <laughs> he was like, we like, he's our older brother. He's cool. He was like, he, like, we didn't want to talk to him about it. And then Isaiah, my brother saw the video and he was like, what? You guys cropped me out of family photo. <laughs> it was awful. Um, and he's like, I wanted to, he's like, he's, said he wanted to go to school to be an art therapist because this was always something he was passionate about and so we sort of like came together and realized that like oh this is something that we can do and we started talking about our losses together so this was march summer was not very far away um, from march and so we just started our indiegogo i think we got our nonprofit status approved in may and so that's when we were able to kind of start fundraising um we raised enough money for five campers our first summer. Um, and thank God we only got five campers because we had no idea what we were doing. And the fact that there was five guardians that felt safe giving us their children for a week at a sleepover camp, like it was magic. And that's all I can sum it up with. Uh, the first, the first year, the five campers, like the second night, we had, we had to act as campers because there were so little kids. So that's sort of how the mentorship program came to fruition anyway, because we started realizing that kids were getting a lot of benefit of having adult suicide survivors to talk to that weren't the clinicians or, or the medical health professionals. Um, and so we, we participated in everything just to sort of make it feel like a bigger group. And there was a girl there who was 16. She lost her father. I was 16 when I lost my father. And we were sitting on a basketball court we took all the mattresses out of the cabins. We were sitting on a basketball court watching the shooting stars in the middle of the night. It was beautiful. It was like a, a movie. And she reached over, squeezed my hand and was like, I've never had the ability to talk to somebody who's been through what I've been through, who knows what I've been through. And I just like, was like, hold it together, hold it together, hold it together. And as soon as I walked away, I just bawled. And I was like, Ugh. it's just like that quote of be who you needed to be when like grow up to be who you needed to be. And I was just like, ah, I'm not. And that camper has she's now 20, she just turned 22. She's come back every year. She volunteers and it's become a part of her life mission. And it's so it's just like the act of being there for other people healed us. And we just want to keep that going for all those other campers. So started with five campers. The next year we went to 21, uh, last year we were at 70. So we've really exploded and we're kind of at max capacity in, in the facility we're at. So that's why we have to either, um, expand weeks or, um, get a second location. Uh, but that just ultimately impacts us 
and our day jobs a little bit too much if it starts becoming like a full summer thing. So that's why we have to sort of get a plan of, you know, do we stay founders and then get people to actually know what they're doing and have the ability to like run a summer camp full time in the summer um, on board who believe in our mission and whatnot. So those are sort of the next steps, but looks like this summer will be hopefully as amazing as, as last and just keep it going. Yeah, I think people that hear this aren't going to be able to see this, but I can see you on video and like just being able to sit back and watch that come out of you was <laughs> a real treat. So uh, thank uh, you. How can people find out about it? Yeah, so it's Camp Kita, K-I-T-A, which is the Abenaki Penobscot word for listen. Um, so that's kind of where that came from. Um, so campkita.org is our website we have a facebook page which is pretty active um so either of those two spots you can find us we're always fundraising we're always um trying to get the word out there uh we'll mail brochures we're happy to talk to anybody who needs to talk to um we're really only word of mouth we're we're completely unpaid organization so every dollar that we raise goes right back to our program and sort of helping it stay free for all the campers and just maintaining the program itself. So um, nobody gets paid. It's literally just, we all do it because we need to. That's a part of who we are. It's pretty awesome. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. The uh, tables and chairs don't seem to matter at all. (laughs) It actually is always a tough transition to come back to work. (laughs) And then like somebody calls you and they're mad about the internet. Then I'm like, it doesn't matter. The wrong color. It's like, fuck off. (laughs) I was like, I just helped a child. (laughs) I don't care about your paint colors, but no, it's it's important to have both. That balance is needed. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's wrap it up there. I think we probably could have gone for another hour, but thank you. That was a a real pleasure for me. So no problem. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks Morgan.